Heavenly Father, thank you. There's a lot for us to be thankful for, and a lot for us to be thankful for to you specifically. A lot of things we don't even recognize sometimes. A lot of things that you do behind the scenes, little nudges or or instinctive movements that we make. And we're grateful, Father, for all that you do, for the grace that you give us that takes the responsibility for the relationship we have with you upon your shoulders and asks us to join you in that rather than expects us and forces us to. May we learn, learn more about pleasing you this evening. Thank you for guiding us and leading us. Thank you for the fun we could have playing our game. Help us to learn more about who you are tonight in this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. It is Thanksgiving. Sort of. You are on Thanksgiving break. Can you quiet, please? We've been talking about the noose, not the hangman's noose. We've been talking about the mind, the thought process. And we've done that from the, uh, the focus on the process of renovating your thought process, changing how you think. And we have identified the left frontal lobe, the right frontal lobe. We've identified the process that's, that takes place where your senses bring in data and you perceive the data and recognize it, and that turns into information. Now that you comprehend it, then you have to evaluate it which means to give value to it. And the last <coughs> lesson we had, we looked at that part of the evaluation process. When it says renovate your mind, the part of that process that gets it renovated first, that then affects everything else is the evaluation stage. When you change the way you evaluate things, when you change the way you give value to things, when you change how and what you give value to, in your thought process, it changes what you choose to do, that determination. It changes what you depend upon, which transfers it over to your norms and standards, your heart. It changes your morals. It changes your protocols. It changes your mentality, that frame of reference, or the attitude that you're in, and it changes your worldview. Now, remember we said, and this was probably more for the high schoolers than the junior highs, but junior highs, we said this last week, maybe to you too, we said that when your <coughs> mentality changes, it changes the way you perceive things. So if you remember, your mentality is your mental attitude. The attitude that you operate in, if you're angry or frustrated and something goes wrong, what's it going to cause? More anger, more frustration. If you're upset about something and it keeps happening, or someone <coughs> does something totally unrelated to why you're upset, not the same person, Maybe you're, you're upset because you failed a test in school that you wanted to pass. And your mom gets home, you get home with your mom and she says, hey, how was your test? And you're like, I don't even like you anymore. And you're like, your mom's like, whoa, what just happened there? Like, grenade. So <clears throat> the mentality changes how you perceive things. You may have, in that example, perceived that your mom was riding you or harassing you, thinking that you, got a, uh, that you didn't do well and rubbing your face. Now, would that be a logical thought process? Probably not. And it's an example, so it's a little far-fetched. I can make it that way because, well, hey, I made up the example. But what I'm getting at is that your mentality, your mental attitude, changes how you perceive things. If you're happy, you perceive things totally different than if you're angry. And so this builds into a cycle. You have to change what you depend upon to change your mentality. When your mentality is different, it means you'll perceive things differently. If you perceive things differently... Then you'll comprehend them, you'll understand them differently. If you understand them differently, then you'll value them 
differently, and then you'll determine to depend upon them differently. But the first thing that has to change is your evaluation part of the process. That's the part where you choose what you're going to give value to. If you don't determine that, if you don't say, I'm going to value what God wants over what I want, then you'll stay in the same exact cycle you've been in. And that's what we're getting at. So tonight's lesson is not about Thanksgiving, but I hope by the end of tonight's lesson, you'll be thankful for how God made us and our bodies and our brains to work, and then even more so for his word, which you can turn to tonight to Hebrews chapter 12. A few weeks back, we had Halloween, or what we called All Saints Day. It was our fall festival. And we talked about this Hebrews 11 chapter. And we're going to be in Hebrews 12 tonight briefly. But in Hebrews 11, it's called the Hall of Faith by a lot of people. Because it identifies a list of individuals who operated in dependence upon God. Not dependent from Him, but by depending upon Him. They operated in faith. Faith means to place your dependence upon someone to do something for you. So when Moses was told by God, lift up your staff and watch the Red Sea part, if he wasn't dependent upon God, he wouldn't have lifted his staff up. God said do it. He did it. He trusted God to what he said. And when he put that staff up, God did what? He parted the seas, the Red Sea. Time and time again for Moses that happened. It happened for Abram and Abraham. Abraham, by faith, received a promise that through him would come the Messiah, that all the generations would come from him. That's talking mostly about Israel, but we have other promises from that as well, because without the Messiah, the Gentiles, us, non-Israel, wouldn't have the chance to be saved either. I want to look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And we might add 3 in there. In Hebrews 12, 1, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. I don't know if you've ever been in anything difficult. I would assume so. We're in, in this world, and this world has difficult times and moments. We all gauge things that are difficult differently. But when you're in something difficult, the hardest part of being in something difficult is not the circumstance. It's not the situation you're in. The hardest part is keeping your mentality correct. If you keep your mentality right, you can get through that situation and it doesn't phase you as much as if you focus on that situation and have your mentality be bad. If your mentality is right, what happens? Your perception is right. If your perception is right, your comprehension is right. If your comprehension is right, your evaluation is right. If your evaluation is right, your determination is right. And you build into your heart those things you're going to depend upon through that situation. Now, we have Jesus as an example, 
that says in verse 2, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That phrase means that he was the first one who operated in complete dependence upon God every second of his life. Adam and Eve were created. They operated, in, they operated dependent upon God until a moment. A moment when the serpent, who was Lucifer through the serpent, came and said to Eve, did God say you could not eat from any tree of the garden? Eve says, no, just this one tree in the middle. Can't touch that one because then we're going to die. And the serpent says, oh, no, you're not going to die. God just knows when you eat, like, eat that tree or the fruit from that tree that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And Eve sees the fruit, says, hey, this is good for food. It's a nice-looking piece of fruit. And if I eat this, I'll be wise. I'll have knowledge. And she takes a bite, and then she gives it to Adam, and she, giving it to Adam, gives him the choice. She doesn't say, hey, choose to eat this with me. <laughs> Look what I did. She gives it to him, and it creates for him a choice. He has to choose. He knows what's wrong. He knows what God said. He's not been deceived by the serpent. And he takes a bite. They, until that moment, when they ate, depended upon God completely, 100%. But, the moment they ate, it brought into, spirit, into this world spiritual death. And from that, we get sin. Because every person that's born in this world, everyone in this room, and everyone else in this world that's been born, has been born spiritually dead with the moment of your first breath. When you take that first breath, your soul is alive, your body is living, you have what we call physical life, but you have no spiritual life because you don't have the necessary component to your human spirit. You've got a dead human spirit in you that cannot function and live. Jesus was born not from the seed of man. It's a virgin birth. Mary, without Joseph. That bypasses the seed of man, bypasses the sperm of the male. And in doing so, it means that that spiritual death isn't passed down to him. So that when he takes that first breath in the manger that we're going to celebrate in about four weeks now, he takes that first breath and he becomes a living being completely, body, soul, and human spirit. Now he's just like Adam and Eve were in the garden when God created them, body, soul, and living spirit. He's just like them, and now he has to choose the rest of his life to do what God says and depend upon God. This is what it means by the author and perfecter. The word perfecter means the one who completed it. He went his whole physical life completely dependent upon God in every second and moment. In other words, when something came at him, a situation came at him, the Father is the one who t spoke through him. His actions came from God. God said, do this. The Holy Spirit said, this is how we're going to do it. And Jesus then did it. Nothing on his own initiative. In fact, in John chapter 14, he even tells his disciples, I didn't say the words that I said weren't my words. They were the Father's words. I'm going to go. I'm going to send a helper to you. The helper being the Holy Spirit, he says. And he will teach you all things. Now we know that the renovation process takes place in our mind. Changes that left side where we have to change how we perceive, perceive, comprehend, evaluate, and determine things. That's what we've learned so far. Now the Holy Spirit and God's word are the two things that make the change in our evaluation process. Because when we're faced with a circumstance or situation, we have to look at it and say, okay, 
I can either do this the way I would normally do it, I can do this the way I want to do it, I can do this the way my parents want me to do it, or I can do it the way God wants me to do it. And there's really only that choice for us. Because the reality is that God gave us the ability to make choice so that we would choose to obey him. But because we have this ability to make choice, we choose whatever we want. Now, if the way we give value to things is based upon what we like or don't like, or what feels good to us, or what stuff is in front of us that we think is cool or whatever, then we're never going to choose his will. Why? Because we'll be choosing our will. So if we are going to do God's will, and his directive will is what verse 2 in Romans is talking about, then we have to make a purposeful choice to stop doing the things we want to do or would naturally do. It's not something that just happens by what we call osmosis. It doesn't just transfer into you because you're a believer in Christ or because you go to church. It has to be a choice you make to submit yourself, to place yourself under God's authority. That's what Jesus did. Take a look at Hebrews 11, or 12.1. 1. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race set before us. We are in the race, the writer of, of Hebrews says. The race is what he, we're talking about. is the spiritual life. We have an objective to get to. That's heaven, ultimately. But the way we get there is through Jesus Christ and then operating spiritually because we have a set of tasks and um, acts and works that God has prepared beforehand for us to accomplish. So he has a plan for us. He has a calling for us. These works that he's prepared beforehand for us to accomplish, and that's our race. Each of us is, in, is different than the others, but we all run it the same way. We all run with both legs, alternating strides as quickly as we can down the track. Your track may be lane one. Your part of the course may be lane one. Your, mine might be lane four. Different parts on the racetrack. But we're all running to do God's will. That's the objective. Now, he says that we've got a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. We have those believers who have gone before us. And that's, he's referring specifically to those in Hebrews 11, but also to all the saints, everyone who's believed in Christ before and he says, because they have done it, because they're above in heaven watching, not that we're supposed to make them happy, because that's not what the point is, but be, based upon their example and what they've done, our job is to stop sinning. Look at this part. It says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, the definite article is used here before sin in the Greek. And what that means is there's a specific sin being mentioned but it's not the same sin. If your last parent's pride and mine's sensuality, then we're going to have different struggles with this different specific sin. This is what we call a besetting sin. It's a sin that's right there in your life that is always there waiting to trip you up that you fall victim to almost every time. And it's going to fit into pride, sensuality, and materialism. That's what we call the besetting sin. It's the sin that you choose to do knowing it's wrong. But it just makes you weak, and you go for it. Now, it's called an encumbrance in verse 1, which is kind of a big word. It's the Greek word onkon, and it identifies 
a weight hung around your neck. The, the, the picture here is that as you're running down that racetrack, trying to do God's will, this thing keeps wrapping itself around your neck, and if you have a weight on your neck hanging down as you try to run, you're not going to be able to run very well, right? If you've got 50 pounds hanging off your neck on a necklace, and you're trying to run a full sprint, when you're sprinting and full out, you've got to be leaning forward a little bit. What's going to happen if you've got 50 pounds in front of you? It's going to be tough to stay upright. You're possibly and very probably going to fall and maybe roll a little bit. This encumbrance is a weight that drags us down. And at first, it grabs on, it climbs on, and we continue to try and run. We continue to try and do the things we've still been doing. We're just doing them sinfully anyway at that point. But it doesn't fully pull us down yet. But it can. And this is the same thing, that sin that's in your life that you struggle with and deal with. That's what this is. It's a weight around your neck. Now, what we're told to do, what we're commanded to do is put that sin aside, to set it down. It's a command, and we're supposed to participate in this action. The Holy Spirit's been convicting us of it. He's saying, let me take this off of you, and we have to let him. We have to take it off and hand it to him and say, no, I'm going to choose not to do this. I'm going to choose to let you lead instead. And when he says, hey, just stop that sin. Choose something else. Do what's right instead. You have to participate in that action to let him remove that from you. Now the way that we do this is by verse 2. Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. doesn't say fixing our eyes on him and then doing the same things he did so that someday we end up on a cross and that will make God happy. No. What makes God pleased with us is when we operate in faith, doing the things he's called us to do through his directive will. Now, his happiness is not dependent upon us doing that. He remains who he is apart from us. We're not that important in that sense. You don't make God happy or sad. But there's a, a word in the Greek used for this word pleased. And what it means is that when he looks at your actions, when they're righteous, when you've done his will, it's satisfying to him. Just like uh, your parents, when you get a good score on a test, it satisfies them. You're like, hey, mom, dad, I got an A on my test. You're like, oh, awesome. Great job. But God doesn't change his attitude towards us, doesn't change his happiness, but it satisfies him. He sees it and goes, yes, that's exactly it. Well done. Now let's do it again. <laughs> Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, Jesus had a different calling than we did. He set his eyes on the cross. He knew what he was supposed to do. He set his eyes on the cross, and he knew it after the cross that there would be joy for him. Why? Because through the cross, he would redeem all those who would choose to accept him as their Savior. To God the Father. We're redeeming back to Him. And so He knows God's plan for Him. He focuses on it. He doesn't look at the cross itself, but He focuses on the joy that comes after it. Now, He is our example. We have all the great crowd of witnesses around us, but we have Jesus who's our example on how to do the will of God. And it starts first with that evaluation part for us. 
what are you going to give value to in your life? I had a story come by my email this week, and it, it was pretty simple. It was a story about a, a preacher, youth pastor, who turned to a senior pastor, became a senior pastor, and he was telling a story about this kid in uh, his youth group a few years earlier. And he said this kid was a senior in high school. He was kind of just one of those bigger kids. He was kind of just always goofing off, and I don't condone this, but the, the pastor said, you know, one time we were just playing a game, and he, he made some comment, and he said, I just full-on punched him in the face. Don't worry, you're safe. Again, I don't condone it. I don't think it's the way to go. But the, the pastor at that point said, when I punched him in the face and he was down there on the ground, I stood over him, I reached down, I grabbed his hand to pick him up, and I said, when, he the M, when are you going to be serious about your relationship with God? Now again, I don't think that's the method about it, but I get the, the shock value of that, right? You're on your back, someone just hit you, and you, he reaches down to pick you up lovingly and says, when are you going to get serious about the rela- your relationship with God? Well, I'm not going to hit you tonight, don't worry. But it's a question you need to ask. Are you serious about your relationship with God? Because you guys are in that transitional place right now where your parents have kind of been setting that stage for you. And they've been kind of modeling that. But some of you are in that place specifically right now where you are picking that up more and more or being let have the opportunity to do that. And you've got to make the choice. Are you going to be serious about your relationship with God? Are you going to pursue his will or your will? Are you going to sit on top of the fence or make your choice? Now, that said, we have an example, Jesus Christ. If he is able to go to die on the cross for our sins, knowing that the same people he'd be spat on by and beaten by were the people he was dying for, are we able to just get up, get dressed, and go to school or work or wherever we're going doing God's will? Knowing that he's given us everything we need and he's right there for us. Those are the questions for your Thanksgiving break. You've got to choose how you're going to give value to things. And the more you grow up, the more you're going to have to make that choice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your will. For what it can do in our life when we choose to let it be the most valued thing. I would ask for all those in here tonight that you would motivate them to do so. That you would show them the value and benefit of your will. That they would see you at work in their life more and by seeing you and learning who you are more would desire to worship you by doing your will. Thank you for what you've done in our lives already. Thank you for all those who are here. Give them a good, safe, and fun week with their families and traveling. And thank you, Father, for everything we have in this nation because men were brave enough to get on a boat, sail across the Atlantic Ocean, and establish a new civilization to further your gospel and to protect Christianity. Thank you for Christ who fixed his joy on the cross. The results that came after that are salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.